Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And in this episode, we are reading uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Father Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, Most Reverend Father Gerard Manley Hopkins. Just just Father. Um, His poem, really? Yeah, that's what comes up on some things. He would just be Reverend. I don't know. Maybe some of the poetry websites got it wrong. Anyway, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Pied Beauty. Um, Victoria, take it away. Maybe, Maybe someone can read it. Uh, to start Chiara, with, do you want to read it? Because it's so short. Yeah, that... it's two stanzas, literally. Two stanzas. Yeah, go. All right. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple colour as a brinded cow, for rose moles in all. I, I'm not going to be any good at reading. Okay, Victoria. Victoria. For rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal chestnuts fall, finches' wings. Landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plough, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how. With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's the poem. Um, I don't know. Poetry is not my area, so I'm going to be taking a bit of a backseat. I'll be a backseat driver, but I will be in the backseat. <laughs> um, Victoria, do you want to, or again, Kiara, um, both of you seem to be a lot more familiar with uh, Jared Manley Hopkins than myself. Um, did you want to speak about one of the key elements of this? Um, what's, do you want to yeah. talk about the man himself? I think it's. I think it makes sense to start out with that, because mm. um, to understand the poetry, the poetry you have to understand the poet, and this... which is so contentious to say nowadays. May I just say, oh. I've just gone through a whole unit on like literary theory and criticism, mm. and I didn't realize until I did that unit that it is so. It's contentious to still factor in the author into your interpretation. Yeah, you have different. That's it, which different is incredible. See, that's of, like the exception yeah. to the rest of the arts and social sciences where you have to account for the author's bias, biases and predilection, you know, whether intent, you know, unconscious or unconscious, mm. you have to account for that whenever you read anything. So it's really interesting how literature totally doesn't. They, yeah, yeah there's, the, a, there's a school of thought in literature that totally rejects the, the I remember, authors. I remember in aesthetics that that was also something as well, that you have these two schools of thought. You have the first school of thought, which is a kind of Augustinian, because it sort of finds its origin in St. Augustine, school of thought which is in his approach to scripture which is that the true meaning of a text needs to first and foremost take into account its author and so i guess he, he was talking about the hebrew people you need mm. to understand them in order to understand the scriptures mm. which i think Whereas totally makes much, sense makes sense yeah, well you have the much more contemporary school of thought is that it's really about what the um what the reader interprets what the reader interprets, and I remember in that class the example, which makes it very difficult, the example of this um, cave painting that's extraordinary that was found. It's tens of thousands of years old. This oh, cave painting, in the French, in France, in I the Pyrenees, so. yeah, yeah like they... a shepherd boy or something lost something and went in there and found. Yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's a very, very, very like famous series of paintings. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. it the buffalo? 
Yeah, the buffalo and the horse. Oh, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. Like how there's they... a documentary because they've actually closed the cave now. It's now blocked to all all yeah. human interaction because it was damaging. Yeah, well, because now, that's why they'd yeah. been preserved for ten thousand years because they were sealed off in a cave in a, in mm. a collapse. So they've resealed the cave now, and no one's allowed to go in there. But someone created this massive video, d- detailed video documentary. Yeah. You can look it up on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, it's too, it's very easy to. And the reason find. you brought that up was because the reason why I brought that up is because that um, that's a good example of how it's like. I mean, understanding the university that we were at, we would probably have been leaning towards the St. Augustine <laughs> interpretation. <laughs> but our lecturer was saying, well, hang on a second. You know, with something like this cave painting, it is actually physically impossible for us to be able to understand that culture. They left nothing. They, they left that painting. That's it. That's all we know about them. That we is- can't know anything more about the 10,000 pre-year-old prehistorical French. Um, and so there's kind of that example. Um, but but yeah, that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily yeah. discount that doesn't necessarily discount the discount that thought altogether because art is visual evidence. So you can infer things from what people paint because people paint and go to the I effort. Can hear Karen McCluskey speaking yes. through. You. <laughs> uh, yes, um, yes, yes. Dr. Karen McCluskey, who is a master. Yeah, Dr. Karen McCluskey is a master of uh, you know artistic uh, the use of artistic. Um, visual uh, visual things in as historical evidence. So you can infer from the art itself what was important to that culture, mm. what was valued mm. by that culture, what they felt that they needed to do in their spare time that was not devoted to mere survival to, like, paint on the walls. That's, you know, yeah, and again, I mean, the same it's... thing goes with poetry. Once people developed the written word, why did, you know, what was so important about writing poetry about these particular things that, Something I think that's um, that's really good that Karen brings out is that she is able to um, to synthesize these things. She looks at the the three different. Uh, it's not her theory, but she no, very no, much no, promotes it. She... The three the audit three different audiences is it? Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. Of the uh, the artwork, the author, and the the receiver. Oh, yes. The cool thing is it breaks down even more because then you have mm. the intended. Um, the intended audience, the intended the audience, which is mm. it's just so cool to learn yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so that's I think that's. Relating back to, to yeah, know, but just to Hopkins, wrap up in terms of like the various all those things together. theories, yeah. So there's, for instance, the very popular theory nowadays, which is the death of the author, which was put forth by uh, I think I think, I think death or Bartes. exaggerated. Yeah, Bards or Bartes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember learning about that in high yeah, school. Yeah. It's really interesting. And then you've got, um, for instance, people like Foucault who would say that there's still the author function. Like the author might not matter, but the fact is that the author's name is associated to different texts, which artificially groups them, which uh, plays on how you, um, maybe not artificially groups them, it groups them nonetheless, which plays on how you perceive these lots of texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got, yeah, basically. So, so, for example, that it would explain why you'd approach Shakespeare differently to something by Emily Dickens, different to, say, George R. R. It's, Martin, it's, for example. It's the, it's the very interesting bond that will link Othello with Hamlet. Very different, but the fact is the author functions still works there anyway and then you've got what's trendy at the moment which is everything whatever the reader feels disregardant of everything else disregardant of the fact that an author might have written a letter to a friend saying my book is about this doesn't matter i did hear something about that like this is this is related to as related to this i promise but there was this author um this or this uh, pulp fiction author 
who went and checked out his Wikipedia page mm-hmm. at one point, <laughs> and someone had written something had written something about the creation of this particular character, which was a common character in a series of books he'd written, and you know, and talked about the reasoning behind this character, and he's a, he's a, it's completely wrong. Uh, you know, I'm like, that's not that was not my logic at all. So he went to try and edit the Wikipedia page, and the edit kept getting rejected. <laughs> The edit legitimately kept getting rejected. It's interesting. This is and so eventually, so he actually went and like went to the effort of trying to get into the bowels of the very very opaque bureaucracy of the official editors of Wikipedia to find out who was responsible for it. And he literally got told, "Oh, you're the author. As the author, your opinion doesn't matter." Wow. There you go. Yeah. That's you know because it's about because it because it precisely because of that particular framework of it's not about the author it's not about the author it's about how the reader interprets it but it's just uh, just as a i guess conclusion to this first act yes this episode um is this question of what exactly then is the point of publishing articles on works as in literary criticism yeah so little what's the point if it's if it's only about the um how the about feels. about how the reader feels, to me the only function the the literary criticism serves is to give people the tools, I guess, to be able to interpret literature or to give, I guess, to give um, a vocabulary to their feelings. Um, that's probably. <laughs> but a bit even then, that sounds a bit. Uh, that... To give a vocabulary to their reactions, to their and reactions, their interpretation. To, the, to, to a piece of literature. I mean, what's the point of literary criticism as a whole? You could have like four units about that. Um, <laughs> to, to cut it down really quickly, and then we'll, we'll get back to Joe Manley Hopkins. Man, this is we, an important debate. We can though. really just go off on our little tangents. It's really, it's really interesting. Anyway, um, literary criticism, well, it came about in. Victorian era, that's where it picked up its uh, excitement, so to speak. And uh, for literary nerds, people just really got into it, you know, cafe culture and all of this sort of stuff. And many reasons it came about. For some people, they wanted to discuss language and the proper use of language. Like, is this a well-written book? Or, uh, for instance, if you had, were part of the school of thought that thought that a novel had to be a, a novel of purpose, you know, are the ideas worth discussing? Are they truly commenting on our society and the problems arising? I suppose you could also say what Lucas said. Yeah, if we're not... A lot of people did bring in the author. A lot of people didn't. It, it, literary criticism is so, no, it's no, so large, saying, it's hard I'm, to talk not, about the one like, purpose. If you, dis- if you discount the author, you're left with self-referential nothingness. Yeah. I'm just saying that like that last school of thought that you were talking about there of like it's all about how you feel. It's like, well, why are we bothering talking about this? Like, who cares? You know, I don't care what you think. It's not going to affect me because at the end of the day, apparently it's not meant to at all. Because, <laughs> um, and the fact that my interpretation is totally and utterly different of yours has, you know, is... Is it just a matter of like... there's, I suppose, a human need to make other people see why you think something. And to, if you feel passionately about it, which, you know, if you've ever sat in... In a, in a lit lecture, you know people get super passionate about texts. You have this drive to want other people to appreciate and maybe even take on your point of view. Maybe, I don't know. You know what I think this goes back to? Heresy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh-oh, we dropped the H word. <laughs> H-bomb is, is in the house. Anyway. Okay, so Jared Manley Hopkins. It's, we're, it's, going yeah. to inter- we're going to include him. 
In yes. fact, we always try to include the author. Usually. Absolutely, we yeah, will. We will, and we want to do it quickly because we're running out of time already. Oh my yes. goodness! Because in my because in our esteemed opinion, the author does have something to do with it. So tell us about the author. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins was Irish, and he was a Jesuit. Yes. Um, that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Okay, to, and he wrote beautiful poetry, okay, so Victoria. To fill in a little bit, uh, he had an intellectual family with many skills, so he developed an interest in, in language and, and this and that, and art. And, um, no wonder he's a Jesuit. Yeah, and uh, so there's that part of him. He, I think he studied... I th- think at Oxford, I'm not sure, I'm really sorry if I'm wrong about that, uh, and he was an Anglican, he was raised um, as a high church Anglican, I believe, because I think that's what Pretty his mother was. Pretty much like every, every, every British slash Irish yeah. intellectual in the, um, yeah. who converted and to Catholicism. in the 19th century who converted to Catholicism. Well, high church Anglicans. And in, yeah, and in, at, I'm assuming at university he came into contact with people or ideas or both, and um, so in 1866, when he was 22, he was... Uh, received into the Catholic Church by uh, John Henry Newman. And in this book I have at home, there are these letters. So not only are there his poems in this book, but his letters. And there's this really cute letter to John Henry Newman. And he's he's like, oh, you know, hi there, you're really famous. Um, Can I please be received into the church? Um, It's not not really like that at all. It's it's, it's, it's kind of fan mail and it's really sweet. Yeah, Um, but for 19th century manly Oxford Don. Yeah, um, (laughs) but it's it's a man falling in love with the church and asking to be received home. It's really really lovely. And then in 1868, he uh, joined the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, uh, and he was 24. And so at that point, that's quite a late vocation. Uh, the Jesuits tend to be. They tend to be. They okay. tend to. They tend to yeah. be on the later side because, and then their formation process is ridiculous. The SJ after their name jokingly stands for Slow Jesuit, um, because <laughs> I know one. Bro- I know one brother who is on his way to ordination to the diaconate. He's been a Jesuit for two years. He has another four years of formation before he's ordained to the diaconate. Wow, that's fairly normal. Did you say two years plus six? Two years, just yeah, to two be years plus four. Two years plus four, so six years to be the to the diaconate, and then it's another four years after that to oh, okay, right, priesthood. Right. And then you, okay, no, that is that is quite a long. And yeah, so it's it's a very 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 long formation period. So anyone, but who there's is a in- lot of like the Jesuits. I've I've heard interesting things about their formation, like things like being um, like just these certain things, like that Saint Ignatius of Loyola would do with his with his followers and that, like, that they would have to... Is it the Jesuits, like, that they would send them out to a remote town with nothing and they'd have to, like, yeah. basically live for a year on nothing? Like, just basically God's providence or something like that? Is that the Jesuits? Yeah. Yeah, like... Yeah, that, that's like the early, that. day, early yeah. days of the Jesuits, yeah. yeah. Goodness. Yeah, no, they're hardcore. Like, I mean, seriously, if you can stick out the Jesuit formation process, your vocation's pretty darn solid. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah, so, and he always loved writing and things like that, but when he joined uh, the priesthood or the uh, the Jesuits, he actually gave it up. And it's this really strange period in his life because he saw it as almost like a luxury. Mm. If I'm living a life of, of poverty and, a bit, and poverty. Yeah, um, Ooh, yeah. I'm not. A, I'm not quite sure how idioms. poetry fits mm. into this. So he, I think he got rid of his poems or something like that. So we don't have many from that time. I'm not sure if we have any. And um, then later on, I think he more fully developed his idea of the world and beauty, creation, and the I logos, think, yeah. and realized that there was a place for poetry and probably and probably some very 
very uh, some very some wise older Jesuits who said to him, "Now, come on, that's a bit yeah, that's a bit ex- that, that's not that's not what this life is about." And thank goodness that they did that. Apparently, I was reading some account that apparently, according to his fellow Jesuits, he wasn't an amazing preacher. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he was a bit too yeah. esoteric, was he? He was, he was a bit of, he was a better poet than a. Apparently, not because his ideas were bad, but I think because he loved words and crafting words so much. I think maybe it was a little. The Jesuits it wasn't are always as, about variety. It, it might not be. It, maybe it wasn't as accessible to uh, your to average the public. person on the street. Average yeah. person walking into church. Oh, that's, that's cute. just that's just an account I read. Um, that's cute. But to the poem itself, um, people have said that it's a prayer. Yes. It, it has a prayer-like quality to it. Um, well, it starts with you know. It starts off with praise be to, you know glory praise. be to God and and God and finishes with praise, praise him. him. So yeah, yeah. Um, which which is absolutely lovely. What did you guys think about the poem? To you know, it was it was good. I mean, I was perhaps you could speak about this mm. um, that I was saying initially that I'm not sure if it was my sleep deprivation at the time, but I found it. I found we had two options. We also had God God's grandeur. Mm. And they I coupled found, together in my head, so I thought yeah, I'd give you the opportunity yeah. to choose. They, um, we ended up with Pied Beauty. Kiara picked one, and I agreed with her. Um, I found this, but more so God's grandeur, to be quite difficult to read. Um, and I think you were speaking about how that's quite funny because he's known that... Well, the thing is that, and you might have... Have we done Shakespeare? Have I talked about iambic pentameter before, or was uh, this yeah, just in? Or was we haven't done. We we're talking about. Yeah, you've talked about it because when we did okay. Midsummer Night's Dream, we we're talking about the difference between um, between the plebs. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. yeah. So, so now the plebs were very crudely trying to jam their speech into iambic <laughs> and pentameter. Yeah, yes. the fifth act, which is hilarious. Yeah. Because, yeah okay, the, I remember the horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go look that I one up. Slain. Hilarious. <laughs> I'm slain. I died. Die, 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 die. <laughs> die, die, die. Um, okay, yeah, so I've talked before about how, uh, so lecturers have told, have, have discussed this with me, and to be honest, I agree with them that I am a pentameter is meant to be sort of a form of perfected human speech. It's just meant to be mm. heightened of how we usually speak, which I agree with. Um, stress, not stress, stress, not stressed. Not technically iambic, but the, mm. no, no, not technically pentameter, but iambic. Um, now, Pied Beauty in itself can be seen as also similar to how humans speak, but in a different way. So it's not an iambic pentameter. In fact, the the feet of the poem are, in terms of what's stressed and what's not stressed, are actually just a jumble, but for a particular reason, because Jared Manley Hopkins developed this uh, technique called sprung rhythm. Okay? Oh, cool. And it's awesome. It's really cool. And what it is is starting with a stressed syllable uh, followed by a variation of unstressed or stressed depending on how you want to go but what it means is it lends itself really well to accentuated list making with purpose yeah um so when he says um so there's a couple of lines with swift he's... slow sweet sour dazzle dim you can't have stressed unstressed you just can't you yes. need to say them all together as and luke and i were talking luke talk about the the really cool little analogy um made yesterday about the two different ways of speaking you know, oh, I was yeah. talking about how with, um, I mean, I go through this a little bit, uh, especially when Sarah, my uh, former boss, used to be here. We'd go through a lot with um, when we were writing things out. And also when I've, like, prepared talks that I have to give and things like that and even reflecting on, reflecting on people that I've found to be incredible orators is that when you're preparing something and you want to say something, even if you're just having a conversation and you know what you're going to say and it's just a free-flowing conversation, 
you would tend to try and I guess speak in what, what was it? I am you wouldn't. You wouldn't try to. You would you naturally would align naturally more with alignment it because yep. it sounds better. If that makes any sense. Mm. Whereas if you're, if I was having like an argument with someone, you tend to chuck that out the window, and you just want to get those thoughts in your head out through your mouth. And I guess this probably lends itself a little bit more to that. Interestingly, like I kind of think of it as this person who's kind of almost in a state of ecstasy, mm, yeah. just wanting to like jam out the the praise that he has for God out there, and he doesn't really care how it comes in out. In many ways, it's this just... kind of reminds me of some of the Psalms. In the yeah, way... yeah, yeah, no, I mean, look, it's because it's that, ur- that sense would of have urgency. Read. Oh, yeah, he would have been infinitely familiar with. Um, uh, you know, he would have read them, you know, four times a day. Um, you know, but in some way, just that sense of urgency mm. in wanting to praise God, you see that. I've, I mean, look, I, for the life of me, I'm hopeless at trying to pick out particular psalms. Um, you know, so I can't tell you whether it's Psalm 104 or whatever, but just hearing some of the praising psalms, mm. there's just this real sense of um, real sense of urgency and desperation just to say I love you. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. just I think, the, you I'm know, just trying it's... to think, Psalm 150, and I only remember this because there's 150, 151 if you're from the Eastern Orthodox, um, psalms. Um, where is it? Like there's um, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute. This is just the translation I got on Google. So yeah. praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding. Like it can get really like just... Monotonous. Yeah, yeah but... but... Like, there's this kind of sense of when you're reading it, I don't know what this sounds like in Hebrew, but this kind of just trying to just be like, ah, <laughs> praise all the things. Yeah. And I mean, you see that in like yeah. you're saying in, in a lot of the other Psalms, that, that very, very long Psalm. No, no, that's not a Psalm. Um, the canticle, the Daniel, the canticle of Daniel. Yes. Um, where it goes on forever. Everything, everything has to praise him. The Jew, the sleet, the snow, the hills. Yeah. The... And they list it all in great detail. <laughs> Yeah. Gerard Badley Hopkins, on the other hand, mercifully summarizes it or picks out one particular, and this is one of the things that I love about him, he picks out one particular aspect and just concentrates on that. Or, just the or little lo- things. Yeah, the little things. And this leads into my next point about him. So, for mm. instance, it's it's difficult to talk about Jerry Ma- Jared Manley Hopkins because when you're researching him, all these very particular technical terms come up. So, you, you know, click on the link to that, which then expands into this, expands into this other... Next realm of the universe, you know, and done, it's this big. Um, you've, done a, <laughs> you've done a bachelor in. Uh, yeah, in basically. <laughs> so just please bear with me because I am going to try and explain these terms, but they're the terms you use when talking about him. So uh, Kiara talked about the little things, and so Jared Manley Hopkins was when he was in university, he was researching this guy called Dun Scotus, who was a uh, theologian. Yeah. Yep. Which one? Which one? Oh, I don't know the one that <laughs> the one that developed this uh, or developed the half of the idea of the in-stress and the in-scape, okay? Yeah, okay. And Jared Manley Hopkins loved this idea and uh, incorporated it into his poetry and saw the natural link between this theory and the um, Ignatian spirituality, the meditations, the exercises. Yes, okay, So, and I'll explain this. So the in-stress, sorry, the in-scape is the technical term for the... um, Amalgamation of complexities that come together in a thing, whether it be a leaf, a person, 
or a sound or something. It's its uniqueness. And the InScape, uh, to put it very, very, very um, uh, simply, is potentially the verb of finding that out or the force that holds all of that together and lends itself to being beheld by a person. I'm going to take a punt just as, as an aside. Yep. It's John Dunn Scotus because mm-hmm. he was a Franciscan. Yep. John Scotus original was before Franciscans. Uh, Dunn yeah. Scotus. Is it John or Dunn? Anyway. anyway yeah. Okay, that's cool. So, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, I think he... I'm taking a punt yeah, on this no, based that, on what that you said. Would, that would make sense if it was... It's a very Franciscan sounding thing. Ah, well, it's very good because he then... Jared Manley Hopkins um, basically brings out the inscape and everything and invites everyone to participate in the instress. I'm not using those words completely correctly, but it's just for the ease of your understanding. So you can hear this coming out when he says, you know, glory be to God for dappled things. Dappled meaning um, marked with spots and rounded patches. Mm. like considered imperfect. Considered imperfect for skies of couple colour. So couple, two. Not just a unified colour, there's different things as a brinded cow, so spotted like a cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trouts that swim. So the little, like, freckles on trouts. Like, he's really paying attention and falling in love with creation. Mm. And um, its creator, fresh fire coal chestnuts fall. Also, just keep in mind the F sounds in that. That's just perfection. How he came up with this, who knows? It's incredible. Finch's wings. Anyway, so what was he going to say? So, Jared Manley Hopkins naturally saw the uh, link between the inscape and the instress and the... Um, Examine. Yeah, the Ignatian um, exercises about how you really put yourself into um, the biblical yes. scene. And you think about, you know, what... Um, you 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 you, do, you meditate on all the I've I've done I've yeah. been taught uh, what taught Jesus how to sandals might have looked like what yeah you know, the, the tr- dust you know can you see, can you see the dust on his you know on the apostles' yeah, what, feet can you smell you know what smells you know yeah. really I'm really reminded here of, I'm trying to find out what this, this is there's this art movement maybe you could either of you could um, it proceeds it's one it's part of this it's a key part of this um, art proceeds science thesis mm. but it's this um it's this art um movement i'm guessing around the renaissance or maybe just after but it's this art movement which high like highly 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 detailed sketches of animals photorealism is it photorealism i'm not sure because I think it's before that. It's pre-photo. Okay. Um, but anyway, when, when I'm reading this, that's what I'm thinking of. Because it's just got this, like, with with these, like, they would pictures of birds and fluffy animals and things yeah, like that. Yeah, it was like that. The, the, But they the, would be the import- ridiculously detailed. Well, because that was the only like, way to. every hair on that animal was there. And that's part of why it's part it's of this but, kind of art it, precedes science thesis. Because only about 30 years later, then you start seeing within science this um, trend towards, I guess... Uh, atomism, not atomism, but like that kind of um, trying to drill down into what is the world made out of. Yes. Kind of thing. Yeah, well, molecular biology. Well, that someone kind of did thing, yeah. refer to Hopkins' poems as passionate science. Mm. Yeah. Which I think is the best term to describe his, his work because he's looking at the natural world and he's just. He's just. Reveling in it. Reveling in it. He's loving it. Um, it's funny because he's also known as one of the like the Victorian melancholy poets. Yeah. So like he had both ways, mm. but um, I love that he has this side of him as well because it and it lends itself so well. You could almost use this as 
a prayer. You could, you know, you could it's, take. It definitely has that quality. Yeah, it has that. It has that spiritual. You know, it's 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 a it's a poem that is. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to use painting to uh, you know vi- you know visual art terms here, but you have um, when you look at it, whenever you analyze a painting, you look about where where your eye is drawn primarily. Mm. Sometimes it's drawn to be within mm-hmm. within the picture, and other times it's pointing you somewhere outside the picture itself. And this poem very much is pointing outside. Yeah, it you know in the, at the same time you know it kind of, it takes you in. And you go, you know, you do a little bit of a look, a close detailed look, and then you go back out, and then he points you back out again with Let that me, last um, line. This would be an excellent opportunity to quote something. So I'm going to go all lit student on you guys. And I, I have this stack of books outside of uh, the recording studio. I only brought one in. Um, and I'm going to quote from it because this will lead into something else. So this is from Prophets, Guardians, and Saints, Shapers of Modern Catho- uh, Catholic History by Owen F. Cummings. This is a little bit on Hopkins. Hopkins finds God in Christ everywhere and expresses this finding in a sacramental way in poetry. The word crafting of the poem sacramentalizes the divine presence that is to be found everywhere and always. One contemporary student of Hopkins puts it like this. The poet incarnates in poetry the incarnate Christ, the enfleshed Logos who is the foundation of the world and word. He saw the poet's task as crafting poetic language in such a way that it, like the sacraments, both signified the presence of Christ and encouraged the acknowledgement and reception of this presence by the hearer. And see, that is really, that's fascinating because this is, you know, look at the historical context. This is the Victorian, you know, this is the Victorian era. Romanticism is also about a side note. Yeah, well, there's, you've got romanticism, you've got the aesthetics, you've got the aesthetes, you've got, Mm. you know, um, but at the same time, you've also got this Puritanism that's Mm. rife in a lot of society as well. And Gerard Manley Hopkins, as well as, you know, Oscar Wilde and a bunch of other, you know, romantic poets and novelists were in a sense rebelling against the Puritanism, which, you know, which in terms of... Also against the industrialism. Yes. Which was killing this natural... I think they're both... Yeah. I think they're both tied together. Yeah. I think they're both... uh, They both go... They both go hand in hand. Um... Because Puritanism says, this, you know, the, your spiritual self, your soul, is the good part of you, and your body is the bad, tainted, dirty part of it. And I think that div- that separation is very much evident in the process of industrialization as well. And so, but this poem rebels against that utterly. Mm. Not just this poem, all of Gerard Manley Hopkins' poet- poets and a whole bunch of other people at the time too utterly, utterly rejects that notion, mm. and. And Hopkins especially is saying, look at the little things. Mm. Look how beautiful they are. How can the material world be bad? Yeah. In a way. You know, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's the image of God. You know, it's the work of a, you know, it's the work of a loving creator. Like, you know, how can this be, how can this be tainted Mm. in a way? And, you know, how can this be completely tainted and without any goodness? So that's, you know, that might not have been on the forefront of his mind when he wrote that poem, but... That kind of context does color, you know, does you know, does really draw out that dichotomy that was going on mm. in you know in the tumult of the industrial revolution. You want to say something? I Luke? was going to say something, but we should probably be wrapping up okay. soonish. I mean, was there something you really, really wanted to say before we finish? Um, 
Not really. We- a little bit of a shout out though for you listening out there. If you're not particularly fond of poetry, but you have a bit of a mathematically inclined mind, I'd like to point out something: the fact that this poem is in uh, is in a quartal sonnet structure, which is a three out of four structure of the Petrarchan sonnet. Now, ah. I'm not going to not going to go into what that is. I think you should. Okay. Sounds interesting. It's inter- it is interesting, but if you want to, you can look up um, this on your own and look at the equations that um, Jared Manley Hopkins did to figure this out. It's absolutely incredible. So if a Petrarchan sonnet, it was not created by Petrarch, as a side note. Um, it's good to know. <laughs> good to know. It was adapted from something he did. But anyway, it was a bunch of Renaissance poets who kind of started using this. And... Um, Lends itself better in Italian to the rhyming scheme, but we use it in English as well. Anyway, 14 lines in two parts. You've got the octet, which is eight lines, and then you've got the second part, which is six lines, which is the sestet, and there's usually a volta or turn um, on the ninth line. So you have the eight lines introducing, you've got the six lines wrapping up whatever it is, and um, you've got the turn sort of semi in the middle, the turn being sort of like an extra point of view or something like that. Anyway... Jared Manley Hopkins saw that this was a very classic way of writing and liked it, but thought that he could condense it into 11 or more specifically 10 and a half lines. <laughs> it's the, the maths behind this is actually incredible. I don't, I don't really understand it. So he put the eight lines into six lines and the six lines into four and a half lines, and, um, which is why you have the little praise him at the end mm. because that wraps up the equation very neatly. And it's meant to lend itself quite nicely to being spoken out loud um but anyway i really recommend that if you if you're really interested in that sort of thing like equations and language and those sort of things look that up because that's fascinating in itself you can spend many hours on the internet looking up the mathematics behind poetry that's cool yeah um okay i th- i think i'll i think we'll wrap it up yes we'll wrap it up there um this again you know there's so much that we could we could talk about here i mean there's mm. a billion and one well stuff I could talk about <laughs> in terms of beauty and that kind of thing um, with this because that's the topic. But it's it's good. We covered a bit, doing a bit of aesthetics today. All right. So, um, yeah, Pied Beauty. Um, we read it at the start, but, I mean, read it again. I mean, it's, it's an experience to actually look at it and read it as well. Mm. I mean, that's it's not just something to be heard but also something to be read. Uh, so check it out. You'll be able to find it below this. If you're listening to this on Cradio, you'll see it in the link, but otherwise just Google it. Um, yeah, so we will be back next time with something. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. We'll be doing something. <laughs> I think we're, we're wrapping up our university. Well, you two are wrapping up your university stuff at some yeah. point, aren't you? No, not for many weeks. Okay, well, I mean, you're just gonna have, you're just gonna have to go with another whole bunch of more short stories and poems and stuff that we found on the way to the studio. The next couple of weeks, um, minty wrapper, fan tales. Um, did you know? Back of Vegemite jars. Yeah, I know. Um, one of those facts that you get underneath, like a Tui's extra dry. Oh that, no! Um, now we fun. know what Luke's been doing with his time. <laughs> Not for a while. I don't think I've drunk a two sex dry in a long time. But anyway, <laughs> that's not what we're here for talking about. So, um, yeah, uh, next time on Catholics Read, something. Something. Uh, All right, we'll bye. Let you know. <laughs> bye. 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 
That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au.